Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, continuing our series, A Vision for Christmas today, let's turn in our Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 8, to chapter 10, verse 4, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, Why We Need a Savior. John 3.16 is an important Christmas verse. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And that is the Christmas message we've all loved, and it is wonderfully true. God, out of his great love, sent his son into the world. God has reached out to us. We were lost in sin, and rather than offering us a lecture, he offered us himself. It's true, it's wonderful, it's freeing, it's what attaches us to the one true God. Now, some years ago, a very well-known church noted for its very loose approach to Scripture held a service in which it invited leaders of various religious groups to a joint worship service. You know, Scriptures were read from various holy books, and this church decided that it would have one of its own members read John 3.16. But in reading the verse, they simply stated, God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that we may have eternal life. You know, the leadership of that church knew quite well that as loved as John 3.16 is to all of us, it does contain some less attractive elements. What was missing in the verse that church quoted were the words, whoever believes in him, meaning, of course, that the gift of eternal life was only given to those who put their trust in Jesus. That is to say, the verse claims an exclusive quality to it. Only Jesus, no one else. You have to believe in him. But that's not all. What was also missing in that church's quote of John 3.16 were the words, should not perish. The problem is this church knew only too well, came up just two verses later. John 3.18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. And then in the next verse, John 3.19, this is the judgment The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. And that's the thing about Christmas. It is true that the light has come into the world, and it is true that the babe in the manger is a sign from God of his great love for ruined sinners. Such glad and glorious truths. We should keep preaching, and we should keep singing these truths. Let's just not let up. Let's say more about it all the time. God so loved the world that he gave his son. But we should also remember that if this were a painting, those marvelous explosive colors on the artist's canvas, well, they're set against a very dark and foreboding background. For Christmas not only brings light and love, it also exposes darkness and evil. See, Christmas is also the story of Herod and his band of murderers who wanted to kill the light. Christmas is also God's word of warning, a word that sounds out from Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Now, I say all these things because as we have been discussing Isaiah's Christmas, we saw both the background of darkness, sin, and rebellion, but the brightness of God's promise. Behold, a virgin shall conceive. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. But right after Isaiah makes such wonderful promises, you might wonder why he immediately turns back to the dark side, if you will. You know, his name shall be called Wonderful, says Isaiah. The people who walk in darkness, he says, will see a great light when the Messiah comes. But no sooner has he said that, 
In the very next breath, Isaiah 9, verse 8, he says, the Lord has sent a word against Jacob. And just like that, we're back to words of condemnation. So it gives. Now, one answer to that question is that up till now, if, if you're paying close attention, Isaiah has had a word from God to the nation of Judah, to the people who are governed by the monarchy of King David, to the people who have the promise of the Messiah. That nation stands guilty. They have chosen salvation from Assyria rather than from God. Yet in spite of such unbridled rebellion, God will still one day give a great sign. A virgin will conceive and God will come to the rescue. That was the message to Judah. It's both dark and it's very bright. But now in today's passage, Isaiah switches and now he speaks to the northern kingdom of Israel. Unlike the nation of Judah, which had some godly kings and some ungodly kings, the nation of Israel had only ungodly kings. This was a people who had heard the word of God, but had rejected it utterly and completely. So let's begin to read Isaiah 9, verses 8 to 12. The Lord has sent a word against Jacob, and it will fall on Israel. And all the people will know, Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, who say in pride and in arrogance of heart, The bricks have fallen, but we will build with dressed stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will put cedars in their place. But the Lord raises the adversaries of resin against him and stirs up his enemies. The Syrians on the east and the Philistines on the west devour Israel with open mouth. For all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. You know, what had occurred is that the nation of Israel had come under attack. Most likely, Isaiah is referring to the first invasion of Tiglath-Pileser, the king of the empire of Assyria. That had wounded Israel. And then, seeing the weakness, both the Syrians and the Philistines were thinking, well, we might just take advantage of this. But somehow the nation of Israel had survived, and now they were boastful. The bricks have fallen, they said, and they're laughing it off. It's no problem, they said. We can not only rebuild whatever was damaged and destroyed, but we're going to rebuild stronger and better than ever before. Israel as a nation was unrepentant. I mean, they didn't say, look, we've had a scare. I mean, we should turn to God. Instead, they said, we can save ourselves. They're like the person who has had a health scare, and for a while, they're thinking about God. But now the scare is over, and all those thoughts are avoided. Whatever we say, you know, whatever doesn't kill you just makes you stronger. I'm going to be just fine. But, says Isaiah, it's the Lord who is raising up adversaries against you. King Rezin of Syria, as one example. All of this is happening because the anger of the Lord has not turned away from Israel. An unrepentant and unbelieving people will receive no mercy from his hand. Now on to verses 13 and 17. The people did not turn to him who struck them, nor inquire of the Lord of hosts. So the Lord cut off from Israel head and tail, palm branch and reed in one day. The elder and honored man is the head, and the prophet who teaches lies is the tail. For those who guide this people have been leading them astray, and those who are guided by them are swallowed up. Therefore the Lord does not rejoice over their young men, and has no compassion on their fatherless and widows, for everyone is godless." and an evildoer, and every mouth speaks folly. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. That's quite a word of condemnation. Everyone is evil, from the elder who leads the nation, to the preacher or the prophet who speaks spiritual words, down to the widows from top to bottom. You know, after Israel's initial brush with the Assyrian Empire, 
they actually had a choice. They could have said, let's now seek God. If he rules all things, why has this attack happened? It may have been a warning from God. Let's heed the warning. Now, some of you might remember that Jesus once asked about a tower, Tower of Siloam. Apparently, this tower had suddenly collapsed and 18 people had died. You know, I noticed that Jesus didn't say, you know, well, sometimes freaky things just happen, and it's just bad luck if that had happened to those who were walking under the tower on that day. You know, instead, Jesus said, these people were no worse sinners than any one of you who are listening to me. And so the lesson to be learned is this. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. That is, when disaster strikes, take it as a sign of warning from God. If you're suddenly ill, if you're caught in a serious accident, if your house burns down, if you lose a family member, things don't happen because you're worse than anyone else. But disasters or tremors, they remind us that we should not take God lightly. Don't you go whistling or joking through the graveyard. Don't you laugh it off. Inquire of God. Make sure you repent of all your sins. Turn from them. Put your hope in God. Remember John 3.16, whoever believes in him should not perish. See, Christmas tells us that a Savior came into the world. It was a world that was heading towards eternal judgment. Yeah, that's the frightening prospect. We stand at the abyss. We're in danger of perishing. Now is the time to repent, for a Savior has been sent to us. But, says Isaiah, in the northern kingdom of Israel, no thought was given to inquire of God. Let me read to you what Sarah Edwards had once written. Sarah was the wife of the very famous preacher, Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards led one of the greatest revivals in American history, and then after some time was appointed as the president of Princeton University. But very quickly, through a series of events, he was afflicted with smallpox, and then he died. Listen to what Sarah wrote upon the death of her husband. She writes, What shall I say? A holy and good God has covered us with a dark cloud. Oh, that we may kiss the rod of his discipline and lay our hands on our mouths. The Lord has done it. John 1.12 reads, But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. Well, this verse expresses the heart and mission of Back to the Bible Canada. We teach the Bible, but for a purpose, that those who hear might receive and believe in the Lord Jesus. That's the intention of every program, every word. Whether on radio, podcast, mobile application, Truth and Life magazine, Truth and Life Today, or our young adult ministry in doubt or the many who tune in to listen to Laugh Again. Every program and resource serves to deliver God's Word so that those who hear would be saved. Thank you for embracing and supporting this mission. Your gifts make all that is done through Back to the Bible Canada possible. And please consider supporting the ongoing ministries of Back to the Bible Canada as we strive to reach our December year-end goal of $465,000. Call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or donate online at backtothebible.ca. Sarah Edwards was right, of course. Of course, God wasn't punishing her husband, for God had sent his own dear son to bear the punishment of her husband in his own dear cross. Sarah knew that her husband was safely in his eternal home. But God was also disciplining, 
acting in ways to both bring awareness of his holiness and to maximize dependence on him, and Sarah learned to give God praise. No such attitude was found in Israel. There was no repentance. There was no introspection. There was no turning to God in faith. And so a disaster now awaits the nation of Israel. God will cut off, he says, the head and the tail, the leader and the prophet, even the most needy, not one will escape. And then for the second time now, Isaiah gives a word of warning to unrepentant Israel. For all this, his anger is not turned away. That is, in spite of suffering that will surely come, God's anger will not be satisfied. His hand of wrath will continue to be stretched out against the nation until they are all consumed. God has now said it twice. Listen up. You know, a great many people have trouble with the idea of the wrath of God. And to be truthful, there are some good reasons for that. An abused woman who has lived under the hand of a violent man has had to deal with a man who is both unpredictable, who flies off the handle in fury. And she might say, you know, I don't want to believe in a God who would beat me like my husband. And to that, everyone who knows the Bible will say, yeah, it is true. God is nothing like that. You know, when the Bible speaks about the wrath of God, it, it doesn't speak about a God whose, whose emotions get out of control and then lashes out in an outburst and then who knows what he's going to do in his anger. I mean, that's not the picture of God. The wrath of God is described in the Bible is God's settled and righteous anger. And when I say that, I mean that the wrath of God is predictable. Now stop there. It doesn't suddenly pour out. First, he gives his law. Then he gives his warning, and then he acts. Secondly, the wrath of God is righteous. I mean, think about two men who live next to a concentration camp in Nazi Germany. One is just filled with sweetness and light, and the other with settled and righteous anger. Demands an action be done. Now, which of these two men do you admire? Think of God's anger in just the same fashion. His wrath is directed against evil. And third, God's wrath is not an emotional outburst. Rather, his punishment fits the crime exactly. But that shouldn't give comfort. Not if we understand the true nature of sin and are horrified when we understand what it truly is. So let's get back to Isaiah. We know that Israel separated from Judah and became its own nation sometime around 930 B.C. After that, all the kings of Israel forbade their people from going to Jerusalem to worship the Lord of hosts. They never offered sacrifices to God. They never thanked God for the exodus from slavery or for the gift of the promised land. They never thanked God for the bounty at harvest time, and they never repented of their sins. Instead, the kings of Israel set up three idolatrous locations and urged the people to worship pagan deities there. The vast majority of Israel were delighted with their newfound idolatrous gods. By the time of Isaiah, this practice had been going on now for about 200 years. God had sent prophets, but the people had driven them from the land. They wanted nothing to do with them. And now the day of God's wrath was at hand. The nation of Israel had had their first brush with the Assyrian Empire, and they had survived, and they laughed that off. We don't fear God of our fathers, they said. We have the ability to control our own future, they said. And remember that in the book of Isaiah, idols are those things that our own hands have made. Idolatry is worshiping human ability at the expense of humbling ourselves before our maker, submitting to him. So let's keep reading Isaiah 9, verses 18 to 21. 
For wickedness burns like a fire. It consumes briars and thorns. It kindles the thickets of the forest, and they roll upward in a column of smoke. Through the wrath of the Lord of hosts, the land is scorched, and the people are like fuel for the fire. No one spares another. They slice meat on the right, but are still hungry, and they devour on the left, but are not satisfied. Each devours the flesh of his own arm. Manasseh devours Ephraim, and Ephraim devours Manasseh. Together they are against Judah. For all this, his anger is not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. You know, you might be wondering what Isaiah might have meant when he talked about slicing meat and then devouring the flesh of one's own arm. He's talking about civil war, or he might even be talking about anarchy. He is saying that the social fabric of the nation is unraveling. When that happens, people begin to do unspeakable things. And yet, in spite of the fact that Israel as a nation has hardly able to hold its culture together, and yet still, somehow, it did come together to fight against Judah, their own brothers. Somehow, they were able to come together and fight against what what everyone conceived of as their enemy. What darkness this was. Think what is happening to you, says Isaiah. Your culture is self-destructing. Immorality is now without restraint, and it's burning you down like a fire burns through a dry and hot forest. What to do when the fire begins? It sounds bad. Isaiah's still not done. Isaiah 10, 1 to 4. Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees, and the writers who keep writing oppression, to turn aside the needy from justice, and to rob the poor of my people of their right, that widows may be their spoil, and that they may make the fatherless their prey. What will you do on the day of punishment in the ruin that will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help, and where will you leave your wealth? Nothing remains but to crouch among the prisoners or fall among the slain. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. See, to notice that Isaiah makes it personal. He's directing his denunciation at the lawmakers who make laws in which the weakest and the most vulnerable of society are becoming an easy prey for the selfish and powerful and the wealthy. It's no longer a society of justice. It's like social Darwinism. The strong and most able are the only ones who survive. You see, the law of God was always to make sure that the poor were protected from abuse. The year of Jubilee was a part of God's law, and it was the year of canceling out all debts. Those who had lost their lands for any reason would see it then return, so they would no longer be destitute. It was a way of encouraging both responsibility for actions and mercy at the same time. There were other laws that were from God designed to help the poor. The fields of landowners were never to have gone over a second time, so that the surplus of the land would be given to the poor. No one was to keep the cloak of a poor man or woman as collateral. I mean, the list just goes on and on. God cares about justice, and he hates it when people abuse the vulnerable. But Israel was not paying attention. And yet here again, Isaiah repeats the line. God's anger is not turned away. Listen to Israel, he says. You'd better think about that. Now, I know this is the most curious Christmas message, but there is a point. Unless we see the human condition as it truly is, we will not marvel that God so loved the world that he gave his son to rescue men and women who have sinned in ways that they had never imagined. You know, the strange thing about evil is this. It never looks to those who are doing evil as if they are doing evil. 
The human mind is able to justify almost anything. I want you to listen to the words of Rudolf Hess. These were words that he spoke during his own trial at Nuremberg. He was being tried for Nazi war crimes. These words that I'm about to read were the very words that were said by Hess on April 11, 1946. He said, I thought I was doing the right thing. I was obeying orders, and now, of course, I see that it was unnecessary and wrong. But I don't know what you mean by being upset, he said. I didn't personally murder anybody. I was just the director of the extermination program at Auschwitz. Well, now, how easy it is to stand back and say, I can't believe a person would actually say that. But what shall we say when we speak about our own sin against the altogether holy God? What shall we say? I don't know that it was wrong, but that's exactly not just the fallen condition of Israel. It's the condition of every ruined and fallen child of Adam. John 3.16 says that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him, and by the way, believing means confessing our sins, renouncing our sins, and saying to God, I know I'm profoundly sinful, but I turn to you like a beggar with arms outstretched asking for mercy. And here's the good news. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And that's the Christmas story. It's the story of an explosion of color and mercy on God's palette over against the incredible canvas of wickedness. It's the story of our own potential Nuremberg trial. But instead of that, finding the mercy of God through the son that he has sent. John, it's Christmas Day, so I need to ask you a question. What are the things or the thing that you think we ought most think about on Christmas? Ben, strangely enough, I think we should think about Easter on Christmas. (laughs) You know, we know that Christmas simply opens up the story. God enters into the world. We know that we're not alone. We know that God is with us. But we also know that God sent his son into the world so that he would be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. He has come with a mission, and his mission is to take care of our sin problem. We are the people dwelling in darkness, and he has come to pay for our sins and to present us before his Father without spot or wrinkle. This is the beginning of the story, and we should be thankful and grateful. Thanks so much, John, and Merry Christmas to you. And please remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, A Vision for Christmas, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Truth and Life Today with Dr. John Newfeld provides regular, insightful interviews with Christian leaders into some of the most provocative and current issues of the Christian life. How would the Bible have us live, think, even respond to issues that ultimately define who we are as God's people? How should we act and respond to the world around us or live uniquely within the church? Join Dr. John Newfeld for these unique and intimate conversations that ultimately provide biblical insight for living as we strive to live as people of faith. Never miss an episode or check out past episodes by visiting and subscribing to our YouTube channel at Back to the Bible Canada. For more information, call us today at 
663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.